Welcome to the Matrix Care Podcast from the software leader for out-of-hospital and long-term care. Matrix Care is dedicated to sharing knowledge and empowering providers across the care continuum, including home-based and facility-based care organizations. Today, we're going to hear from Kevin Whitehurst, Senior Vice President of the Skilled Nursing Solutions for Matrix Care, and his special guest. Let's dive in. Good day to all our listeners today. I'm very pleased to speak to Dr. Raj today about the four pillars of a successful COVID-19 response and future outlook. Dr. Raj and Matrix Care have collaborated on the topic before. Why don't we begin with you telling us about yourself and your experience with the pandemic, Dr. Raj? Hey, Kevin, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you're staying okay. safe. And um, and again, hello, everybody. Uh, good to be back here speaking with, with Kevin on this very important topic in these in unprecedented times about COVID-19. And I am Raj Mahajan. I am a physician, internist, and geriatrician out here in Chicago and its suburbs. I run a decent-sized practice that specializes in hospital medicine and post-care long-term care. Uh, we have our team dedicated at the front lines. I personally have worked with our local and state health department helping come up with the COVID-19 response guidelines. And I've had a very strong interest in, in technology, in healthcare, and have had um, worked with healthcare technology companies as a consultant or, or a physician leader. And I'm so glad to be here again uh, talking about the four pillars in uh, COVID-19 response, especially for our, our nursing home industry. Well, we certainly appreciate you um, taking the time to speak with our listeners today, and we're excited to have you on board. So let's get to the topic of the day. I'm going to let you begin by describing these pillars of success. So there are four pillars of success for our audience to be aware of. Infection control, testing, PPE, and staffing. So why don't we start with the first pillar of success and tell us about that, about infection control. Hey, uh, Kevin, yeah, it's uh, so much has changed and, and especially with infection control, which definitely ties into the other two pillars, but is at the core of a successful response and everything is evolving so fast as we know this is a brand new virus. It, this did not mm-hmm. exist before. And so uh, all the guidelines on its infectivity or, or, or isolation or um, how long you have to keep somebody in isolation, what kind of isolation you have to have them on and, uh, and how long you have to have it, whether you need to test it before you discontinue it or not. And, and, and the observations for the new admissions and, and the PUI status, which is the person of interest. So there's so much that is rapidly evolving it is um, really drinking from the fire hose when it comes to the information that's out there. And we definitely know that CMS and CDC and, and state and local health departments based on where you are could sometimes even have conflicting information and recommendations for, for mm-hmm. our industry. So all I will say is that 
please stay in touch with uh, with your corporate if you have use your technology partners in having a very strong surveillance program and definitely try to have the if you have a covid-19 unit just be aware of the infection control related measures that go in and the, the type of isolation um, that goes in and and just CDC today actually came up with a, a fairly stark information from the Minnesota initial study that uh, one out of every three high-risk exposures within nursing homes to COVID-19 among staff is not during patient care, it is during non-patient care. And so <clears throat> you have to be uh, definitely aware of that universal masking that that came in initially, and then now the infection control related PPE that is needed in our observation units for all new admissions um, is is so very important. And and all those guidelines are generally available uh, on on CDC and and your state health department. And so at, at heart of this is is infection control. It is a very very uh, virulent organism, and it's not uncommon for it to have almost 80% infectivity rate within a nursing home facility and, and up to 20%, 25% mortality, which is those numbers are unheard of. And at heart of, of managing that truly is knowing uh, the true infection control and the mechanism of its, its propagation and infection. Well, that's really interesting information. And, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, as we get more experience understanding the virus and the facilities get better with how they can control infection in their facilities, you know, everyone's going to be better off. So thank you for that information and everyone knowing that infection control is definitely one of the key pillars. So moving on to the next one, and you, we read and hear a lot about testing. And I think there's also conflicting information about testing out there too. So can you share with our listeners what you understand about it and what your recommendations are? Um, yeah, absolutely. So testing by far has been the most controversial topic around, around management of um, COVID-19. So there are several things around testing that are still very confusing to providers. And things around that are how often do you have to test your staff and how often you have to test your resident, right? So, and then also what kind of test are you going to use for what? And so, so some of the key things around testing are understanding what you're testing for. Are you testing somebody who's symptomatic and, and you, you need to know whether they have COVID-19 or not? And, and in that case, uh, you have to either isolate or a resident or you have to remove or excuse a staff. And this is people who are, are, are depicting the symptoms um, that are on the list for possible COVID-19 symptoms. And the second is, uh, is your routine or mass screening where based on, on the guidelines from uh, the federal government or, or, or state or local health department, you have to test your, 
residents and staff on a regular frequency where they are asymptomatic, but because we know that a fair number of people who are infective or who can actually transmit disease are asymptomatic. And um, so there is a value to testing uh, both residents and, and staff uh, on a regular basis. So that is a major um, differentiation we need to make. What is the preferred mm -hmm. purpose of testing? And secondly, uh, what we need to uh, know is the, the, just the different kind of tests that are available now. Two of the most commonly uh, known tests are either a PCR, which is the polymerase chain uh, reaction um, short form uh, PCR testing, which somehow for now is, is the gold standard. And the other uh, uh, more of a rapid results um, can be obtained by what we call antigen testing. And we all know the federal government had dispatched these rapid antigen testing mm -hmm. machines to uh, most of the nursing homes um, in, in, in U.S., again, prioritized based on on the state and the, the infectivity rates. So, um, and, and so those antigen testing, the, the recent, just the fact that the amount of false positivity is so high, a lot of places have rendered them not useful for, for routine screening purposes, and not to mention the supply chain issues in, in getting that number of testing supplies and the, the manpower that goes into running those machines and getting those results. So, and we have changed our stance on this several times. So, and also with the number of times um, the PCR testing is being done, um, the, the, it is not uncommon for those results to not come back for seven days. And, and, and now you can imagine a scenario where mm -hmm. let's say you're testing your facility once a week and and uh, you test them last Thursday and you're ready to test them again this Thursday because uh, still majority of the guidance is testing the employees once a week at facilities and you are testing people again without even knowing if they were positive last time or not so oh that's horrible Yes. And so, and again, it's, it's very common for, for PCRs to not come back for a week. And the guideline from health department for people to be tested, and let's say people, the employees to be tested um, once a week. Now, so, and we also saw what happened with the state of Nevada and their initial um, recommendation to completely stop using antigen testing and then federal government coming back and pushing back on those. And so, so there is a lot of confusion. So CDC has helped us with some of that. Um, so again, in, in summarizing this still very confusing concept of testing, testing is very important. Make sure you, your lab vendors, or if you're using your health department, you make sure that they, you have them back in time. And again, it's a supply to demand issue right now. Most of the places, if you get it back in two days, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And and so, but definitely because of, uh, even with a high positivity, false positivity rate within antigen testing, if you are in a place where you, you know that your PCR is going to take a long time, you can use them even if it's for screening. And again, there's no clear cut 
guidelines from any authority on that, but you have to leverage your clinical leadership. Hopefully you have involved medical director as well as the local and, and corporate infection prevention leadership that is able to stay in touch with the current guidelines and is uh, able to give you recommendations around what has to use where. There's nothing written in stone. You, you, you try to do your, your best and PCR is always number one choice, but if when turnaround time is an issue and is also important, you, you, you can uh, use the antigen-based testing and, and you can use the combination to achieve what you want to achieve is be able to detect cases early whether they are symptomatic or asymptomatic and be able to isolate them from uh, your healthy cohort so we can mitigate the propagation of this disease within our, our facility. Wow, that's a lot of good information. I didn't realize there were so many different ways that you need to look at it and you know evaluate your unique situation so you can be more effective with that. So moving on to the third pillar, um, I speak to a lot of operators, a lot of um, skilled nursing facility providers about where, you know, their focus is and their priority and the safety of their employees and their residents is definitely top of mind. So we hear a lot out there about PPE, PPE being the third pillar of success. Can we talk about that? Yeah, definitely. And, and um, I think this is a good opportunity to go back and address our first pillar, which again is so vast that during the, when we address our first pillar of infection control, we didn't mention mm -hmm. a lot of things about, about COVID and the, the mode of transmission on how people get it. Right. So, and you can see the sessions we are done back in May and July, how information has evolved. Now, so few things that I will mention again with PPE, people know that when you are in an observation unit, which is your first 14 days after a uh, in a new admission or if somebody goes out for medical care versus you have a PUI or, or which is also a resident uh, who might have depicted symptoms or, or have been exposed that we know we need to rule them out for possibly COVID. So that's PUI or your actual COVID residents. And so Based on that, uh, we know that the PPE required is, is, is fairly something that our, our nursing home industry is not used to. Within hospital setting, we have had always dedicated rooms that have negative pressure. So going back to the fact that it is airborne organism where you could have transmission by particles that are that are in the air and that changes how you protect yourself with an active or, or a suspected case. And, and that all brings us to what we call a respiratory program. And again, I will just bring up more uh, concerns from providers with OSHA requiring people to have a respiratory program given in their books, this is an airborne organism. And for that, what it means is that you are required to either have an N95 
supply and all your all your workers be fit tested for N95 masks. The bummer there is that first of all, um, there are not enough ways to get your even if you want and you're, you're ready to use your top dollar to get your employees tested, fit tested for N95 mask, there are not enough people out there who can give you an N95 fit testing. So there is wait for months for some of the vendors who do that. Um, that's number one. Number two, even if you got fit tested um, and everybody you know is fit tested, current supply of N95 masks out there is mostly one size, right? So even if you get people sized for what N95 they need, you probably don't have the the smaller or larger, you know, the extreme sizes that might be required for some people for N95. So 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 that that you know, again, it, it just complicates things. And um, we know that some of the federal agencies have stayed quiet on this topic as to how do we get these PPE, you know, especially if it's fit tested N95 to our providers. I mean, I, I remember one of my facilities one time was paying 15 to $20 per mask. You know, it, it's just, <clears throat> that is, you know, it, 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 I just don't have words for that. And how do you continue, especially um, if you, you can't have, sustain with that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so that's the ad. And and then there are some other alternatives to N95 Max, which is PAPR devices. Um, the um, so and again, it's it's something that's very hard to man maintain within within nursing home industry. So we know that the the PPE needed for for a COVID protection is a, an eye shield, um, so either goggles or full face mask, N95 mask, um, gowns and gloves, right? So, and all of them, and there was a time in July, August, where you couldn't find ounce. So, so people, we, we have heard people using garbage bags and, and even people getting garbage bags to be used as, as gowns through some of the health departments. And, and again, those all, you know, stories as sad as they are, um, our example of innovation and uh, necessity being uh, the mother of invention. But, you know, we're trying to do the right thing with the most limited resources and absolute poor funding from, from health departments. So I feel the pain. And, and, and again, the most we can do is provide information. I, I think PPE overall scarcity is, is easing up a bit, but not at the level where it should be. You still have to pay for five times you used to pay for gloves and gowns and and that's just not that's just not cool yeah that's that's not for sure so moving on to the fourth pillar of success um and this is again like the other three a topic we hear about all the time and it's staffing let's let's talk about that dr raj you know that is where again i i get i get very very emotional you know when i talk about this particular pillar and we have we have known to and we we have advocated for for frontline staff in nursing home to to be it's such um it's such a caring and hard job to be a cna or a pct to take care of a nursing home resident these people just just are, are great, great human beings and, and giving their best. Um, and, and most of them are paid less than, um, you know, 
and I, I say this to, to your local big box store, you could go there and be a greeter and make $2 more an hour. And this is a true example for one of the facilities where, where I'm at. Um, and again, that's, and they're paying the, the current prevailing wage for CNA, which is $2 less than, than you know, our, our, our big box store three blocks down from the facility. So now you add that to all the quarantine, isolation, and the positivity exposure-related staff limitations. We have heard back in, in New York and New Jersey during the, the height of the pandemic there, people staying 24 hours while, while having temperatures of 101, 102, because majority of the residents actively diagnosed and being treated for COVID as well as your, your staff. And, and you couldn't find staff to come in either because they were sick or they, they, they were folks that wouldn't go in. So, so um, some of the federal waivers around you know, immediate training and deployment of frontline staff has helped. Um, now, there are most extremes. We have college students who have just jumped in, gotten their training, and worked. Um, and again, you know, with, with, with the healthcare workforce, again, as I said, I get emotional when I talk about it. Um, there are people who are in it because of the nobility and just, you know, helping nature. And there are people who run towards the fire. And then there are people who run away from it, right? So, so we have a mix of workforce, but I am just so surprised to see there are so many people who have decided to, um, to run towards the fire than away. And this applies to the doctors who are retired, respiratory therapists who've been retired, who came back. And a lot of them actually succumbed to COVID-19 after being exposed and getting, uh, getting the disease. And, and it's as sad as it is, but these are the real heroes. And, and when you have that banner or yard sign of heroes work here, it's, it's not a joke, it's serious. But, but the number of people who got sick around, around the outbreaks, it's very, very hard to, to keep appropriate staffing levels uh, in the facilities because they just don't have enough people to work with all the restriction and, and sickness that causes. And so, so definitely uh, workforce-related uncertainties uh, have been um, revealed during this pandemic, and I'm hoping people at the at the policy making level and at the and the and the regulation level are taking a note and we will see some positive changes on how we staff our facilities and how the staff is um, is reimbursed and in return how facilities are 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 reimbursed and I know during our initial conversations about this session we talked about what's on all the providers' mind right now is is just payment and finances. Uh, it's, it's, it's a huge issue and staffing is a major part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, um, for our listeners out there, you know, we just covered four major areas, infection control, testing, PPE, and staffing. And um, there are other things too that we're observing. And we'll talk a little bit more about the future outlook and some of those aspects of it. So, from a technology perspective, Matrix Care has always made significant changes to better support the providers through the pandemic. So for example, we put a lot of emphasis on innovation to give providers access to more predictive data, 
uh, and more tools so they could um, find better ways to manage infections. What can you share with our listeners about your experience with technology and also what you see necessary for the future? So, yeah, I mean, I, um, you, you, you um, stole my words. I, <laughs> I, um, and that's one of the reasons maybe four or five years ago, after doing a lot of quality improvement and regulatory uh, stuff on top of my clinical roles that I started gravitating towards uh, technology and, and some of the leaders at Matrix Care uh, around that time, we're looking for same. How do you how do you change this industry? How do you? What is it we can do? So again, going back to whether you're talking about staffing or whether you're talking about finances, whether you're talking about about infection control, we are so used to depending on manually tracking our data, manually tracking our workflow, manually tracking our infections, that to get better, we just have to even keep increasing our manpower. And that is what we don't have, right? We just talked about staffing. And so, right. so, so and, and what I said was, uh, at working as a clinician, you're making changes and improving one life at a time. And only that's only that many lives you can get to in a day. Mm-hmm. And, and, and on the other hand, technology can really improve the health and the well-being for the population, for the state, for the country, right? And so, and, and data is so powerful. And, and we say that, how are you going to improve anything if you keep doing the same things over and over again? right? That's number one. Number two is we know as, as human beings, we can only think just that much. It's a finite, you know, thinking power we have. And finally, you know, it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. So if, if you are not using data to its potential and, and, and use it to improve yourself and then have technology also help you with some of the interventions is how you get golden. And, and that's where the predictive analytics we have talked about. It used to be a fancy term, right? Oh, predictive analytics, artificial intelligence, you know? So that used to be like all these fancy terminology people used to throw at you. But this is where we have seen people who have adopted it, right? So mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you figure out who might be of your asymptomatic people other than doing manual screening and temperatures twice a week, predict that somebody is going to have, um, you know, possibly a high risk for COVID. So, so just like that, we, we can track so many things using predictive analytics based on their medications, based on their activities, based on their food intake, mm-hmm. all of that using these algorithms, uh, we can predict some of this outcome. And similarly, you know, using clinical decision support, using order sets just helps you so much. You know, we were just talking about amongst the leadership group uh, in, in medical directors that how can we hardwire some of the anticoagulation guidelines? You no, know, majority of people might not be 
dying due to the COVID early on, but in their second, third week, they might have a complication of thromboembolism. And, and how can we you know, hardwire some of those decision support using some of the data from the EHR? Similarly, how do you pick antibiotics? How do you monitor their respiratory status to alert the clinician on the patterns that are concerning. And so, so definitely technology integration in, in clinical workflow and having the, the technology experts, you know, working with clinicians to come up with this innovation is where really um, some of the success lies. And I hope more people are thinking about it. I do too, I hope so. We're definitely seeing an uptick in technology adoption, at least here recently. And I, I can definitely attest to those providers, really, you know, everyone's suffering and everyone's going through this crisis and it's affecting everyone, but we, we definitely are seeing higher performing clinicians and facilities who are really maximizing what they can get out of technology and it's really making a difference. So we are, you know, about the end of our podcast here, but there, I want to kind of wrap up to get your perspective on where you see this going. You know, what does it look like for the future of this industry, the future of healthcare after what we've experienced and what we're currently experiencing? Because now we're hearing about vaccines and new medications. What does this all mean? So yeah, definitely if I were to, you know, since we, this is a follow-up to our sessions and we're sticking to our four-pillar theme, I definitely have added the fifth pillar here is, is vaccination. And then, you know, for sure, um, vaccination is one important piece of the puzzle that is missing. And once we have it, that's when we can even start predicting if this is going to ever going to end or become an issue that is not gonna, you know, lead our lives. Um, mm -hmm. And so again, there are different things coming up around vaccination and, and there's a huge lobby of, of leaders who want um, the nursing home residents be the first few people who get it as, as a prioritized because obviously we've seen the high mortality and, and, and morbidity among nursing home residents and I hope that happens. There have been several announcements within the last few weeks about how the supply chain and, and administration is going to work for, for vaccination. And again, if you look at the, the history of pandemics and any, any other and disease, you, you have to have an immunity solution. So, um, and so for that, mm -hmm. uh, we definitely uh, have to have vaccination that is uh, going to be effective. So far, early trials look that way. And so, yeah, I mean, hopefully okay. next year um, in spring to summer, we have a majority of the nursing home residents be, be able to at least start, if not done. And then we'll readdress, you know, as, as the leaders in public health are saying, this is not going anywhere soon. And so right. people need to gear up for that. There are some other, you know, we've heard a lot about remdesivir and whether it should be available to nursing homes. It's not, it's not covered to be administered nursing home. There's some chatter about that. I think we'll have answers. Mm -hmm. 
uh, we have uh, now data that it is effective and there has some thought about possibly using that in nursing home setting. And then the whole monoclonal antibody to be used within nursing home settings. And, and, and then there's some advanced treatment, convalescent, convalescent prosma and all of that, which we, we don't, again, that's obviously is going to be hospital setting. Just to end, uh, being a clinician, we, we don't really address a whole lot. Uh, around finances, but I think uh, that is going to be the most important thing. Uh, just this morning, I, they announced another $333 million in incentive mm-hmm. payments for people that have done. I have not dissected how it's been. And similarly, over $5 billion to CARES Act money is coming to providers who uh, will be doing the uh, required educations to the, the echo hubs and around infection control. So those are some measures in right direction. Um, mm-hmm. And and we've you know, gotten provider relief funds or parental protection monies. And, but all of that is not enough. I, I think uh, there has to be a radical shift on how this industry is compensated and, and reimbursed. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not going to solve this this month. Um, but unfortunately, there are going to be a lot of casualty of this transition um, where people are not going to be able to continue with their operations because of just the financial hit. But again, sticking to those four pillars and trying to do your best and, you know, really uh, partnering up with your, your clinicians uh, in, in, in making sure that you do well with, uh, with COVID-19 is, is what what the solution is. The, the financial impact of this is dire um, mm. and, and people you know, should um, go to their uh, provider groups to stay in touch with what's happening. I know there's a lot of, lot of talks going on on how we change this, some of it temporarily and some of it for good. And in my opinion, um, there has to be a, a, a radical uh, paradigm shift on how we get paid in, as an industry, and and I will support um, anything uh, that get, that puts forward. Yeah, well, this has been a wealth of information, Dr. Raj. We can't thank you enough for joining us on this podcast series, and for all of you listeners out there, we want to thank you again for taking the time to join Matrix Here podcast series. We um, we've enjoyed having you here, and for all of your listeners out there. Stay tuned for more podcasts in the future. Be safe and be well. That concludes today's episode brought to you by Matrix Care. We hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to visit us at matrixcare.com for more information on our solutions and services. Please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a review if you enjoyed this episode or have other topics you'd like to hear discussed. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook to hear more from Matrix here. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.